we were living in a really strange time. Um, you know, the rapid changes and the confusing things that have been going on in our culture um, have been pretty staggering. You know, when I think about the past two years and how many things have changed and how rapidly and how really um, it's been a bit unsettling to see how quickly things have changed and how what we thought was once stable is not stable at all. And what we thought we could count on um, as being things that we continue, uh, the times have changed quickly, haven't they? And so, um, you know, there's many things that I think that can give us discouragement when we look at the world around us today that can cause anxiety and fear. But the book of Daniel was written during a time when God's people faced great challenges and when they faced great suffering. And I think it contains a message of hope for them that sustained them through turbulent times, but it was a message for hope, of hope for them, but it's for us today. Well, we're in Daniel 7, so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to take a moment here and I'm going to read the entire passage and then we can recover. And if you are not familiar with this passage, this was quite an intimidating uh, passage to have as your first sermon. So, <laughs> um, I am intimidated by it. So, and I, let's, let's read. I'm in the ESV for those of you who are not. So, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. He wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four, four beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And, a mind, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. In verse 9, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing 
was white as snow, and, his, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream issued forth and came, and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. As verse 11. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As, the rest of the, as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me, was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of, of the things. Verse 17. The four great beasts are four kingdoms who shall rise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive a kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth and spoke great things and that seemed great and that seemed greater than its companions as i looked this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the ancient of days came and judgment was given for the saints of the most high and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom verse 23 then he said as the fourth beast oh sorry then he said as for the fourth beast there shall be a fourth kingdom on, on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it into pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, 
His kingdoms shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. That text is weighty. Um, and I don't know about you, but it, it does intimidate me. Um, and so today, as we're looking at the seventh chapter, um, I'm, I'm expected that what we, we'll see, actually, I don't know what we'll see this morning, to be honest. Um, I don't know what sticks out to you today, but um, I can tell you some things that maybe we're not necessarily going to get to. I, I don't think that when we approach this text today, my goal is not to have some kind of roadmap for the end of times or some kind of key to identifying the Antichrist, but rather I hope that within this we find a message of hope. And not just a message of hope, but actually an invitation. And an invitation to come to the living God, the King of heaven, who is clothed in light. And so as we make our way further into the book of Daniel, what I've noticed is it's becoming more and more clear that the book of Daniel is actually a story, and it's a cohesive themes that we see coming up. And this is a story of kingdoms, human kingdoms that are rising and falling, and God's kingdom that's rising and will continue to endure. And so I think that's what we see in this text. Um, Daniel was written five and a half centuries before Jesus, the Messiah, came into the story of human history. And Daniel received this dream in the first year, it says, of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, so to place this vision uh, with where we've been so far, um, this, this actually chronologically falls within, uh, it occurs somewhere between chapter 4 and chapter 5. So even though we're in chapter 7, we need to back up a bit. Um, there were two, if you remember, there was a story of two kings. Uh, there was King Nebuchadnezzar and there was King Belshazzar. And what we found in the story of chapter 5 and chapter 6 was that Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar uh, both were enamored with their pride and their imperial power. And so as a result of that, God confronted both of those kings and humbled and gave them the opportunity to humble themselves. Belshazzar, I'm sorry, Nebuchadnezzar became as a beast of the field for a, a season, and then he humbled himself and God restored him to his position. Belshazzar did not. He was confronted by God with the, the hand that wrote on the wall and was weighed and found wanting, and that very night, he lost not only his kingdom, he lost his life and was assassinated. And so, to put this into the context of where we've been, this is after King Nebuchadnezzar, and Daniel has this vision, and it's during the reign of Belshazzar, but before it's taken over by the Medes and Persians. And so, at this time, Daniel's likely in his mid-60s, and he's having a vision. And um, I think to keep in mind what's going on within Israel, you know, Daniel's been in now the promised land likely over 40 years. And so to keep the context of the national morale in mind, I think, I think it, it gives us a little sense of what, as he sees this vision, what exactly is going on. Um, and so Daniel was in exile. They're in Babylon at this time. And Jerusalem, the city of God, has been laid waste and devastated. 
And there's no Israelite king on the throne, and they're in captivity. And so the outlook for his countrymen and his homeland is, is pretty bleak at this point. Um, they've been in exile for years now, and so I'd imagine the dashed hopes and their fading memories of the promised land that God had given to them is, is beginning to fade. And so those, they're longing, I think, for the fulfillment of God's promised kingdom that he said he would bring. And so in a situation like that, what I would imagine is that it is difficult, and I, th- I think we would see this, that they would, they would be in a state of hopelessness. And so that would lead to compromise in their loyalty to God. And so here, here within this the context of the stories that we've been through, we've seen um, hopelessness, but we've seen Daniel and we've seen his three friends acting faithfully to God and trusting in his faithfulness and that he is in control. And so as we, as we jump into this, um, I don't know if you know or noticed, but uh, Daniel um, kind of switches gears here a little bit, didn't it? And we've, the first half... Uh, of the chapters 1 through 6, we've had these stories. And so what, what just happened is that we switched, basically switched a, to a different writing style. And so the second half of Daniel switches gears entirely, and it reads like a whole different book. And that's because it actually is a different writing style. The first six chapters are composed as historical narrative, which basically is just stories. And so those stories have been telling of God's faithfulness and his power to deliver Daniel and his friends from evil kings and empires they encounter during captivity. But chapters 7 through 12 are in a genre called apocalyptic literature. And um, it's, it's the same book, it's the same author, but it's a different writing style, and I think it's supposed to be read differently. Now, for some of you in here, um, that word apocalyptic might give you the goosebumps or the jitters, and you thought about sneaking out the back door, maybe when I started reading it. And so maybe, maybe you've been avoiding these kind of texts in your, in your reading, Bible reading plan. I don't know. Um, some of you might really enjoy them. And so um, maybe a few of you got excited, and your synapses are firing away, and you're ready to analyze every component of the story and fit it into the end-time events timeline or something. Um, But I I think let's take a moment and consider the purpose behind the style of writing. Daniel didn't sit down to write an an apocalypse in the way that someone sits down to write a play. It was not his intention. Um, And and I think we try to view the text through that lens um, that, that... by interpreting it through, that, through the genre, that can give us the tendency to approach this book as like a puzzle piece, that we've got to fit it all together before the book can speak to us. And that's not the case. As in your daily life, you read a variety of different styles of writing. So you may read a manual for assembling your kid's clubhouse swing set, and you might read um, your Facebook comments, and you may read, I don't know, a teen fictional dystopian novel, right? And you're not going to read all those the same way, but they all might leave you disappointed at the end of the day. (laughs) 
So they're intended to be read differently. And if you decide to read a Clubhouse Swing Set assembly manual using the voice impersonations of characters from Disney's Beauty and the Beast represented for each component, then you need to call me, because I'd like to watch. So the word apocalypse is derived from the Greek word apocalypsis, which means to reveal, to disclose, or to uncover, unveil. And it conveys the meaning of seeing something in a way you couldn't see before. Because of our limitations, we don't see the world the way God sees it, and he knows this. An apocalypse is when God gives somebody clarity to see something from his divine perspective. And so apocalyptic literature often reads more like a scene from a sci-fi fantasy than a historical narrative, which is why we felt the difference in the shift. It uses imagery and uh, symbolic language to convey feelings and emotions and to um, um, provoke your senses. And so it frequently speaks of God's people's ultimate victory over evil and the future fulfillment of his kingdom. And it often encourages or challenges God's people during oppressive and difficult times. So, before we dive into this text, I think it's important to remember that the images and the symbols that Daniel, that Daniel um, dreamt about don't come from a vacuum. Um, rather, I think that these images uh, come from the pages of Scripture themselves. So I want to spend a moment just kind of tracing some themes through Scripture When we look back at the first few pages of the creation story, what we see is we see God creating the heavens and the earth. And he's described as hovering over the waters and over the darkness of the face of the deep. And it's formless, and it's void and empty, but God does not get rid of it and throw it aside. What he does is he forms it with his creative power, and he brings forth what? Land. That's the first thing. And then he causes the dry land to come out of the sea, which the sea later becomes an image of danger and death and destruction. And then um, the land is a place of safety and stability. And so God creates beasts to dwell in the land. And then from the dust of the earth, he forms humans, breathing life into them. And the humans were created unique among all of God's creation. And he fashioned them in the image of God to reflect his glory and express his nature through his good creation. And God placed beasts on the land, and man was to rule over the beasts, caring for them under God's authority. Now humans were given a divine mandate in Genesis 1.28 to multiply, filling the earth, and subduing it, and, and filling all the, uh, subduing all that was, all the earth. And so, as bearers of God's image, there was like this divine partnership with him. 
And where man was supposed to have dominion over the beasts, caring for them and ruling the earthly realm under God's power and love. In fact, the earth is spoken of in Scripture as being God's footstool, as if the throne on which God is seated and reigning in the heavenly spiritual realms extends here to earth where his authority and dominion are expressed and seen. And it's here on earth that man is given dominion to reign. But all this changed when one of the beasts came and convinced man to believe that he can rule in his own way apart from God. He persuaded him. He didn't really, God didn't really mean what he said and that he could be like God, deciding for himself what's wrong and right and good and evil. But the beast, this beast comes up later again in Scripture and reappears in the end of the Bible as a great dragon-like beast. Now, instead of ruling over the beast, which man was given the power to do, he rejects God's authority and gives his authority to the beast, and the beast conquers him. And the consequences of this are catastrophic. And humans who were given domain over the earthly realm surrendered their domain and rule to the serpent. And thereby they allowed him to rule the earth in their place. As a result of this, humans now became subject to the rule of this beast, the serpent. Rather than expressing God's image and goodness and glory, they became twisted and corrupt and overcome with evil desires and began to exhibit beastly characteristics. Now, God promised man that one day one would come from their seed whom the beast, the serpent, would bite on the heel as he crushed his head. And this was a promise that one day God would destroy the beast and he would restore his royal authority on earth. Now, the rest of Scripture is replete with stories of men behaving more like beasts, instinctively fearing one another, wild by nature, devoid of understanding. That's how Scripture describes beasts. But it's also filled with reminders of his promise. Now, as man rejects God's authority, he becomes twisted and deformed. And so we see this playing out over and over through Scripture. One day Cain is warned that he's about to be overcome by an urge, and this urge is called sin, and it's going to devour him like a beast. And so it's waiting to devour him, and it does. And then he kills his brother, Abel. And so this urge of sin was passed down through all generations of man. And before the flood, man rebels against God, and he fills the earth with hatred and violence. But we see beasts obeying the command of God while men act like beasts outside the ark and the, and the beast obey God coming two by two into the ark to be saved. And so we see this theme of beasts and man 
who is supposed to rule over creation and have dominion and reflect and spread the glory of God throughout the earth. But yet over and over and over, we see that he is actually ruled by something else. And this goes on through Scripture. And we could mention more stories. You know, we see not only just men acting like beasts, but entire kingdoms who become twisted. And so, as they rise and they increase in power, they promise comfort and shelter and freedom and protection, like the land does. Um, but what, in their pride, they reject God, and instead they become filled with the abuse of power, cruelty, evil, and injustice. And they become deformed manifestations of the dominion that God intended men to have. So the earth has become a scene of universal uprising against God. But sometimes we can still see glimpses of God's kingdom where his rule is acknowledged. God reminds us that he hasn't relinquished his sovereignty and power in the face of rebellion. Rather, he is sovereignly directing history to bring about his justice against evil and restore creation. So, with that background, let's jump into now uh, chapter 7. And so, now we can get started. So, I don't know if y'all were planning on eating today. I don't know if anybody started a timer, but I told somebody I was going to start a timer. So, what time do we need to be out of here? Um, if you're new, I apologize, because this is my first time. I'll just, that's my disclaimer, okay? Um, so, so, let's jump into this vision. Um, I think if we just look at this in sections, it's going to make it a little easier. And so the first section, I call it, this is verse uh, basically 2 through 8, I call it the great but not so great beasts, or also known as three beasts and a mutant. (laughs) So Daniel's dream is perplexing as it might seem. Um, It came, um, it might, there are basically Two clear sections. And so the first section is the dream or the vision, and that's in verses 1 through 14. The second is the explanation or interpretation of the dream by an angel that's standing nearby in verses 15 through 28. The dream in the first section uh, has basically four transitions or scenes you might think of it as. And they're all signaled by the words saw and looked. So Daniel sees and he looks. And so what he sees in the first six, uh, sorry, verses two through eight, is he sees four great beasts that are rising out of the sea. And so um, then the second scene is the ancient of days, and he is in a throne room, and there's a, it's a divine courtroom in there is a judgment taking place. And so then the next scene is verses 11 through 12, 
and we see uh, the judgment of this beast and the destruction of the fourth beast. Um, And then in verse 13 through 14, we see God giving an eternal kingdom to this one like the Son of Man. So, um, the second half of the verse, or I'm sorry, the second half of this chapter, uh, verses 15 through 28, are basically the interpretation of the vision that's given by an angel. And so Daniel questions the angel about the meaning of the dream, and the questions are answered by the angel. So that kind of sums up the basic framework, I think, of how I perceive this vision. Um, uh, I, twice, I think, it uh, draws our attention to the fact that Daniel's response to the, vi- the, vision, the vision is that he is anxious and he's alarmed. We see this in verse 15. And in verse 28, he says it again, that he's alarmed, and he says that his color changed. And that Daniel was alarmed is significant for us as a reader, and I think it's an indication of how we should receive this vision. If there's not something alarming about it, then maybe we need to read it again. I, (laughs) I found this more alarming as I read it over and over. Uh, the past couple weeks. I had a little extra time to prepare, if you don't know that. Um, So, the vision came to Daniel as he slept in the night, and um, as dreams are, this was a vague and what seemed kind of like ambiguous, and so I think that's helpful to remember that this is a dream, and it's of something, it's like a glimpse of the distant prophetic future. And so for Daniel, the meaning is not clear, but it was alarming but it was hopeful. So, as ominous and obscure as it may seem, this vision was meant to set the sights of God's people above the waves of chaos that were crashing on them in captivity and to set their gaze on the magnificence and sovereignty of God. It was, it was written down by Daniel to inspire faith, encouragement, and worship. And I hope it does that for us this morning. And it it was written down so that it might carry them through desperate times. And even though it was written two and a half millennia ago, it has comforted many, many generations of God's people. It has in part, I believe, been fulfilled. And yet, part of it, has not yet passed, but will come soon. And so while it's impossible to know for certain the meaning of the details of the images, uh, one might argue that's not even the point of the vision, uh, this does provide hope for us today in a world that offers us only fear and anxiety. So now let's fast forward back to Daniel 7, where we see the the divine vision, um, and we see several scenes. In the glimpse, um, in the first glimpse, Verses 2 through 8, we see the wind stirring the sea. And the wind represents chaos and disorder. And it's used metaphorically of peoples and of nations. And this is seen in Isaiah 17, 12, when it says, The thunder of many peoples, they thunder like the thundering of the sea. The roar of nations, they roar like the roaring of mighty waters. 
And so the sea represents a, the peoples of, the, of a tumultuous, sin-ravaged world where men, tribes, and nations assert their dominance. And then out of the sea arises four great beasts. And the angel's explanation in verse 17 says that these beasts are four kings who will rise out of the earth. Now, these are less like kings and more like empires or imperial powers or superpowers. And so we see four beasts come up. The first is like a lion. It had eagle's wings. And it says the eagle, the wings were plucked off and lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. The second beast is like a bear. It's raised up on one side, and three ribs are in its mouth, and it's told to rise, devour much flesh. So it's obviously hungry. The third is like a leopard and has the four wings of a bird, and it had four heads, and it dominion was given to it. This seems to indicate that it's um, that its power is extending or increasing. Now, I don't, if you, I don't know if you noticed so far, but there are no kittens or squirrels in this vision. <laughs> These are predatorial animals. And so, as we move forward, this fourth beast that comes up, which I call the mutant, um, is terrifying, and he is described as terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. That's Daniel's description of him. Daniel is just seeing the vision. I can't imagine what it's like to live, actually live under this beast, but that's what he says. It's terrifying, dreadful, and exceedingly strong. And in verse 7, he says it has great iron teeth. And three times in the chapter, verse 7, 19, and 23, we're told it was different from all the beasts that were before it. And we'll come back to that statement, so hold on to that. It's incomparable to the other beasts. It devours and broke pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And verse 23 clarifies what it meant, what it, what's meant by broke in pieces and stamped down. It states, it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. And so the intensity of its strength and the scope of its power and its, dom its dominion surpass that of the other three beasts. And this scene is meant to inspire, I think, shock. And if I told you this morning that every reliable news agency that I could look up was touting the same story about a new union of nations rising to power that's going to dominate the world scene in a, matter, in a matter of months so thoroughly and ruthlessly that by the time their ascendancy is complete, you'll no longer recognize the world, that would be disturbing. And so Daniel says in verse 19 that this beast is exceedingly terrifying. He's describing a power that's a one of a kind. No kingdoms have come prior to it that compare. So the final beast is not likened to any animal at all, but it is distinguished in that it has ten horns on its head symbolizing its great power. In the Old Testament, horns are used to represent power and sometimes the reign of kings. And the angel in verse 24 tells us horns are kings that will rise 
out of this kingdom. And the pinnacle of this beast's power seems to coincide with the rise of a little horn or a king that comes up among the ten horns. And he's mentioned in verse 8 as having the eyes of a man and and a mouth that speaks great things. And this is not saying it gives inspiring public speeches. This horn is putting on quite a show. And three times in verse 8, 11, and 20, his, Daniel's attention is drawn to the mouth of the words of this horn. So in other words, little horn got a big mouth. Or he mouthing off. Now Daniel's question to the angel in verse 21 and its explanation in verse 24 shed more light on the nature of this horn. And Daniel says it seemed greater than its companions. And the angel stated... He shall be different from all the former kings. He, shall, um, he, he seems to have more power and authority than any who have come before him. And according to verse 25 and 6, it says, He puts down three of the previous kings and thinks to change the times and the law. And verse 25 makes it clear that he has two primary targets at which he is directing his power and resources and energy. And it says, He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and they shall be given into his hands for time, times, and half a time. That means three and a half years. And it seems that he will exert all his energy and power into opposing God and destroying God's people. Now this unnamed Evil, unnamed ruler's character is built, actually built throughout the rest of the book of Daniel in chapters 8 through 12. And just as Daniel's profile is built in the previous narratives, chapter 1 through 6. And so because we've seen the faithfulness of Daniel, when we see this vision, which seems so strange, we can know that because of Daniel's um, testimony, and because of who he is, that we know that this is something that is from God. And so this little horn is not the kind of person that you seem to want in power. In fact, he's the worst kind of leader. He may be the worst leader ever. And he appears to be twisted, brutal, power-hungry, a supplanter, boastful, blatantly blasphemous, and brashly defying God, bent on annihilating God's people. And in many ways, this ruler seems to personify in human form the characteristics of the serpent, the enemy of God. So in verse 21, Daniel's attention is drawn to the little horn. He he states, I looked, as I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Now, regardless of the identity of the four beasts in the little horn in the first section of this vision uh, seem to be like a summation of world history, which I think could go something like this. Evil powers will dominate the world scene and then turn their targets towards God and his people. So I think that's what we see going on in these verses. Now, as far as the interpretation of who these beasts are. And I I just want to note, this is very, very 
peripheral. And I don't even think this is really the, um, this is not the, the most crucial thing that we can get out of these texts. But there's a lot of speculation among scholars about the identities of these beasts and whether they're empires past, empires present, or future. And I don't think it's going to benefit us greatly this morning to go exhaustively through every position. But I, I do want to share a, a few brief thoughts about what I, I see as their role in history and their place in um, like end times or eschatological, meaning that the times referring to Christ's second coming. Um, so I encourage you not to get caught up in, the ta- in uh, this task because there's uh, many more treasures in this text that are more beneficial to, to us this morning than identify in the kingdoms. So as far as the past goes, some, some say that these are from the past, and some believe that these kingdoms are past, uh, are the past, are kingdoms of the past, and that the four beasts are the truncated kingdoms of Rome, which were ruled by Alexander the Great's four generals, and that Antiochus, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes is the little horn, who, who around uh, 164 BC or so, he brazenly persecuted the Israelites, and he outlawed their customs and even the scriptures, claimed himself to be Zeus incarnate, in the same fashion that his predecessor Alexander the Great had done. And he sacrificed a swine on the altar of the temple and set up an altar of Zeus in the temple, commanding it be worshipped and sacrificed to the, to, at, at the penalty of death. And some of the Jews denied their Jewishness as a result, but many refused to compromise their beliefs and they died for it. And so, some believe that that's who these beasts are. Others um, draw a connection between Daniel chapter 2's vision, uh, dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, and um, this, this image. And they think that it, it represents a succession of world empires. And, um, you know, in, in that vision, there was, there was the head of gold, the arms, the... Uh, thighs and the legs with the feet mingled with clay, and then a rock comes and crashes onto it, breaks the whole uh, image, and, and then the rock grows into a great mountain. And so that represents God's kingdom. Now, in that vision, Daniel, Daniel explicitly identifies Babylon as the head of gold. But uh, that's not the case in this vision. Uh, now, after the head of gold, came uh, Babylon, came Medo-Persia, and then they were conquered by Greece, and then Greece was conquered, conquered by Rome. And each of these ruled, um, uh, were, each of these were dominate, world-dominating empires, and they were successfully con- conquered by one another, with the exception of Rome, which uh, their rule ceased around 395 AD, and the empire deteriorated in stages. So some scholars identify the beast of the lion as Babylon and and that these are successive, representing those four kingdoms. Um, so, some say that the, um, the king's dream is a human perspective on history, and the Daniel's dream is the heavenly um, perspective on history. And so, then there's also those that fall in the camp of that these, these are not really for the purpose of being identified. And so, in contrast to some, um, so, well, sorry, they believe that the purpose is not identification, and that the horn, uh, the beast, and the, I'm sorry, 
the intention of this passage is, is just supposed to be ambiguous. And so um, John Bright, in his, in his book, Kingdom of God, writes about this, this thought, um, that evil powers, the evil powers of the earth, seem to be personified in the figure of the beast. Yet it is not merely Nero or Domitian, or, nor Hitler or Stalin that is in question. It is any of them, all of them, none of them. It is the earthly powers, whoever and however many they be, that subverse the will of the adversary that have made themselves anti-God or anti-Christ. It is, if you will, eternal Nero or Nero reborn, who walks the earth in many incarnations and is the sum total of evil, and it launches its demonic assault upon the heavenly kingdom, the Lamb, the Son of Man, and him who sits on the throne. So in other words, it's not meant for us to know. Um, now, I, I do have some thoughts about this. Um, I believe that maybe one day, I don't know, there will be elements of this that can be identifiable within time and history, um, but at least now it seems vague at best. And so um, if God can fulfill hundreds of prophecies regarding Jesus' first coming, then I believe that he can just as easily bring to pass the apocalyptic prophecies of his second coming. I don't want to spend more time on this, so I'm actually going to skip. Because I could keep going. Um, now, I, I want to stress that if the identification of these images or this is really peripheral and it's really of little gain. And so... Um, if this, creates, uh, if, if this creates tension in a relationship and a conversation about it, I think you've missed the point of this text entirely. And so um, if the lack of clarity about the identity also causes you to doubt the inerrancy of scriptures, I would say, I would just remind you of one thing. Jesus believed the book of Daniel. And he quoted from this very chapter. And if he believes it, we should. And so now... From the beast and the horror that's intensifying and the destruction of, and violence that's increasing from these powers, Daniel's vision switches and transitions, and we see a second scene begins. And in verse 9 and 10, if you'd look with me there, the curtains of heaven are drawn back, and Daniel sees a vision of the interior throne room of God. He got VIP tickets, backstage passes. And so as he looks, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. This is a scene not just of the throne room of God, but also of a divine courtroom where one called the Ancient of Days sits in judgment over all nations and all history. His name ancient of days, rings of his eternality. As the creator of all things and the one who has reigned supreme, guiding history since the beginning, he changes the seasons of earth and its rulers as he pleases, humbling the proud and exalting the humble. He has seen all, he knows all, and from his penetrating gaze, nothing is hidden. He has seen every 
injustice, every act of evil, and he sensed every good deed. He alone possesses the qualifications and worthiness to be the judge of every nation, every empire, and every individual in all of history. His strength and authority far exceed that of the puny kingdoms. Now, as Daniel um, 4, 17 and 5, 21 say, the Most High God is sovereign. He rules over the kingdoms of the earth. His strength and authority surpass that of any earthly kingdom, and to him the kingdom belong the, uh, belong the rightful rule and dominions in heaven and on earth. This is the king who takes his seat to judge the earth. His judgment will encompass all history and humanity, and it will be conclusive, and it will be final. And in an effort to describe the weightiness of what Daniel sees, he's grasping for language and he uses metaphorical imagery. He says he's clothed in white, representing the brilliance of his holiness and the splendor of his purity as one clothed in pure blinding light. His hair is like pure wool, symbolizing the unplumbed depths of his ageless wisdom and knowledge. And his throne is surrounded by fire. Described as a fiery flaming throne with wheels ablaze. Which seems to be implying that, implying that there are no spatial limitations or dimensional limitations to his being or his judgment. He is omnipotent, everywhere present, seeing everything. And the intensity of his gaze will penetrate to the core of every being. And he, des- he describes a river of fire issuing forth from his throne, depicting the righteous wrath of his judgment and his holy indignation against evil. And there are countless serving him and millions upon millions standing before him. It's before this king that a court is called into session. And it says, the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. His judgment will be true. It will be fair. It will be without partiality. And he will judge every letter of the law. And he must Judge by the books. In the midst of this glimpse of God's divine courtroom, Daniel's attention is then drawn to verse, in verses 12, 11 and 12. It's drawn back to this little horn who's still mouthing off. But then it ends. And the Ancient of Days sits in judgment, and by the word that proceeds out of his mouth, the beast is destroyed, and the mouth of the arrogant horn that spoke against him is silenced. There's no struggle, there's no threat, no challenge, just unhindered execution of judgment. 
And so the first section of this vision, if that didn't bother you, um, then the second scene is sure to cause your heart to melt, this one here, because uh, it did mine. And so as we began this text, I said there's a message of hope. But where is this hope found? Because so far, um, this is not very hopeful. Who can stand before the fiery presence of God and not be consumed? If you'll take a moment and remember in the beginning, we say humans were given dominion to rule on earth with God, but then rejected God's authority and surrendered their, over their right to rule the earth to the serpent. And keep this in mind and notice what transpires in verse 12. It says, their dominion, the beasts, was taken away. The fourth beast and the, and the horn are judged, but the power, authority, and dominion of all the beasts over the people of the earth is not diminished. It is taken. And so we see a reversal of what happened at the fall, where man surrendered his dominion. And here we see it is taken. And so... Now, if uh, four beasts rising from the earth and one of them a mutant beast, uh, which grows in, uh, then has a great horn and destroys the earth and a glimpse of the fiery presence of the throne room of, the judge, of, of God where there's a judgment seat, if that's not bewildering enough for Daniel, a new scene begins. And as this scene of the divine courtroom seems to come to an end with the judgment of the beast, in 13, Daniel sees... One coming not up from the sea or the earth, but on the clouds. And would you read there with me in verse 13 and 14? I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Drawing our attention, Daniel does not want us to miss this when he says, Behold! One like the Son of Man, who comes to the Ancient of Days and is presented before him. This is two persons. One like the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days. And now they take full attention on the center stage of this vision. The Son of Man, this Son of Man is able to approach and draw near the fiery presence of the Ancient of Days, and yet he's not consumed. Verse 14 says, He's given dominion and glory and a kingdom that is everlasting and shall not pass away. So this kingdom, um, this, is, this kingdom being described as the kingdom in Daniel chapter 2, it's described in verse 44, 
a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall it be left to another people. This very kingdom is, is the kingdom that's attributed to God. But yet it's being received by the Son of Man. And so to rule this kingdom, one has to be everlasting himself. And this is no mere man. And it's stated that he rides the clouds. Now, according to Psalm 104, verse 3, God makes the clouds his chariot. This seems to be one who is man, yet has the attributes of God himself. He rules over all. He won't be destroyed like the beast, and his kingdom is eternal. Now, for Daniel, this was Good news, finally. But he's got to be scratching his head, asking, who could be the king of a kingdom like this? But there have been promises of a king who would rule forever. And the promise was made to David in Daniel chapter 2, verse, I'm sorry, second, it was made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'll read chapter 7, verse 13 through 16. Say, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. My steadfast love will not depart from him. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That was his promise to David. And so, as I said earlier, this vision is in part fulfilled. Daniel is getting a preview of the incarnation of Christ nearly 500 years before it occurs. And this mystery is less veiled for us, and we know that now it's describing Jesus. In fact, the title, the Son of Man, was without argument, Jesus Favorite title for Jesus. In the Gospels, the phrase Son of Man occurs 84 times in the New Testament. I'm sorry, yeah, 84 times in the Gospel. And in the New Testament, a total of 88 times, with the exception of five of those instances, that expression is always from the mouth of Jesus himself. And so the phrase the Son of of man in the Old Testament is actually a poetic synonym that simply means man or mankind. However, the expression one like the Son of Man is far more significant. And in the Gospels, we hear Jesus referring to himself as Son of Man. And we have the tendency to think that he's actually emphasizing his, in, his humanity rather than his divinity. And so, likewise, when we hear the phrase, Son of God, we would perceive Jesus oftentimes as stressing that which makes him divine. And with, while these, both of these titles are actually used to indicate both his divine nature and his humanity, the emphasis is the opposite of what we usually perceive it to be. And the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they knew that. 
This becomes really evident in their reaction to Jesus' use of the title Son of Man in Matthew 26. While he's on trial, not in the divine court, he's on trial in a human court. And before Caiaphas, the high priest, Jesus is asked plainly whether he was the Christ or the Son of God. And rather than saying yes, Jesus said, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at, the, at God's right hand and coming on the clouds. Then the high priest tore his robes and says, he has uttered blasphemy. Jesus' use of the Son of Man was, uh, the title of the Son of Man was a direct reference to this passage, Daniel 7. And so, where the Son of Man in here is the supreme, eternal authority of all nations. It was, this was not an expression of humility. And rather, it was actually a claim to divine authority. So, this provoked the, this provoked the Jewish leaders so much that they sentenced the divine king to death. Now, Jesus used this title throughout the Gospels, uh, his use of this throughout the Gospels went against the grain of Jewish understanding of the identity of the Messiah. Uh, they thought of the Messiah as a conquering king, but Jesus entirely reshapes that idea. Uh, for instance, in Mark 8, in Mark 8.31, it says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Now here, and in several other passages, Jesus weds together two seemingly conflicting messianic patterns. Jesus was the Son of Man, the God-Man, who will come on the clouds of glory, uh, with glory, all power and dominion, and would become the suffering servant. He was triumphant, eternal king who gives his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus is the king descended from heaven to purchase with his life a people for himself and who will come on the clouds like lightning with all power and set up an everlasting kingdom. Now, when we consider the way that Jesus used the title, the Son of Man, in his statements, they fall into three basic categories. First, they refer to his earthly ministry or his becoming human. Second, they speak of his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. And thirdly, there are those that are eschatological, which that is, they refer to his future coming in power and majesty. And when we consider the quantity of, of each of these groups, it's the last group, those speaking of his second coming, that occur most frequently. And so, uh, to me, I think this is an indication that D Jesus desires for us to dwell on and long for his second coming. And so I'd like to take 
just a minute to go through just a couple other ways that I feel like God's divine attributes are revealed or on display in Jesus being the Son of Man. First of all, He is eternal life. The Son of Man is a heavenly person possessing eternal life, and He brought that eternal life into the world so that we might take part in it. And to find true life, we must accept the humanity of the Son of Man. That's why Jesus in John 6.53 says, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He is eternal life. He is also the perfect man. In his life and death, Jesus was fully obedient and submissive to the will of God. And he displayed his divine glory and his, the perfection of his manhood. Rather than a man turned beast, distorted and evil, he was what all men were meant to be, but failed to be. He was the true man. What Paul describes in, as the second Adam the one who resisted sin and brought life to the world. So he's the perfect man. He is also our propitiation or the payment price for our sin. Though he was from heaven, he was put on trial in human court. Even though he had all authority, And even though he was innocent, he was pronounced guilty. Even though he had right standing before God. And he was condemned to death. And by taking the death sentence in the human court and put on trial, he traded places with us so that we might take on his righteous nature when we appear before the ancient of days in the divine courtroom. That is staggering. He is also not just the perfect man. He is the judge. Because of his perfect obedience, all authority and judgment have been given to him. And Jesus alone has become qualified to act as the judge of all men. He says this in John 5, verse 22 and 27, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So he's the judge. And he is not just the judge. He's also a sympathizing judge. He became the perfect judge for mankind, for you and for me. Having himself experienced the full realm of the human condition and the weakness of humanity 
with the exception of sin, he will exercise his judgment over all creation while sharing the same nature of those that he judges. He will judge full with full understanding and sympathizing with us. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And the last thing I'd say about what we see of who God is in the Son of Man is that he is a humble God. He descended and took on full, fully took on human form. And when he was resurrected and ascended back to heaven, he didn't shed, but he retained his humanity. And for all eternity, we will, we, he will have both his humanity and his deity. And we will forever marvel at his, his humility. John 1.4 says, I'm sorry, 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, really quickly, back to Daniel 7. We've covered verses 1 through 14, which is the dream, the vision. But there's one last uh, section, which is basically the explanation to Daniel of the vision by the angel. And in fact, these details change everything for us. The Son of Man who receives the everlasting kingdom does not rule it alone. He rules it with his people. And verse 18 says, But the Son of Man, oh, sorry, it says, But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. So Jesus entered the world, permanently uniting his eternal divine nature with his humanity, so that those who belong to him and their humanity would also share in his incorruptible divine nature and eternality. Jesus became one of us so that we might become like him. He took on our human nature so that he could give us his divine nature. Or as St. Augustine wrote, the Son of God became the Son of Man that you who were the son of men, might be made sons of God. And verse 27 ends with hope for us, for God's people today. Verse 27 says, And the kingdom of God and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and Obey him. I hope that this morning, rather than an ominous vision, that what is left, and as we walk away here today, is 
your affections being stirred for who God is. Because this is magnificent. And a beautiful picture of God's relentless, unstoppable love and the lengths to which he would go for you and for me.